Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Showboat, the classic story from Edna Ferber that inspired one of the greatest American musicals. This is the eighth book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads, featuring the acclaimed Canadian actress, artist, television, and radio host, Marilyn Lightstone. You can find the entire series online at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads Edna Ferber's Showboat. Chapter 16 And this, said Sister Cecilia, is the chapel. She took still another key from the great bunch on her keychain and unlocked the big, gloomy double doors. It was incredible that doors and floors and wainscoting so shiny with varnish could still diffuse such an atmosphere of gloom. She entered ahead of them with the air of a cicerone. It seemed to Magnolia that the corridors were tunnels of murk. It was like a prison. Magnolia took advantage of this moment to draw closer still to Kim. She whispered hurriedly in her ear, Kim, darling, you don't need to stay. If you don't like it, we'll slip away and you needn't come back. It's so gloomy. But I do like it, said Kim in her clear, decisive voice. It's so shiny and clean and quiet. In spite of her lovely Ravenal features, which still retained something of their infantile curves, she looked at that moment startlingly like her grandmother, Parthenia Ann Hawkes. They followed Sister Cecilia into the chapel. Magnolia shivered a little. In giving Kim a convent education, it was not in Magnolia's mind to prepare her for those Sunday theatrical page interviews beginning... I was brought up by the dear sisters in the convent. For that matter, the theatre as having any part in Kim's future never once entered Magnolia's mind. Why this should have been true, it is difficult to say, considering the child's background, together with the fact that she was seeing Camille and Ben-Hur and the Rogers brothers in Central Park at an age when other little girls were barely permitted to go to cocoa parties in white muslin and blue sashes, where they might, if they were lucky, see the funny man take the rabbit out of a hat. The non-sectarian girls' schools of good standing looked askance at would-be entrants whose parentage was as socially questionable, not to say bizarre, as that represented by Ravenel, Mare and Pear. The daughter of a professional gambler and an ex-showboat actress would have received short shrift at the hands of the headmistress of Miss Dignam's school for girls at something or other on the Hudson. The convent school, then, opened its gloomy portals to as motley a collection of jeunes filles as could be imagined under one roof. In the prim, dim corridors and cubicles of St. Agatha's on Wabash Avenue South, you might see a score of girlish pupils who, in spite of the demure face, the sleek braids, the severe uniform, the modest manner, the prunes and prism expression— still resembled in a startling degree this or that vivacious lady whose name was associated with the notorious Everly Club or with the music halls and museums thriving along Clark Street or Madison or Dearborn. Visiting day at St. Agatha's saw an impressive line of smart broughams outside the great solemn brick building. 
and the ladies who emerged therefrom, while invariably dressed in garments of somber color and restrained cut, still produced the effect of being attired in what is known as fast black. They gave forth a heady, musky scent, and the mold of their features, even when transformed by the expression that crept over them as they gazed upon these girlish faces so markedly resembling their own, had a look as though the potter had used a heavy thumb. The convent had been Magnolia's idea. Ravenel had laughed when she broached the subject to him. She'll be well fed and housed and generally cared for there, he agreed. And she'll learn French and embroidery and deportment, and maybe some arithmetic, if she's lucky. But every t uh, every shady lady on Clark Street sends her daughter there. She's got to go somewhere, Gay. This pillar to post life we're leading is terrible for a child. Oh, what about your own life when you were a child? I suppose you led a prissy existence. It was a routine compared to Kim's. When I went to bed in my little room on the cotton blossom, I at least woke up in it next morning. Kim goes to sleep on North Clark and wakes up on Michigan Avenue. She never sees a child her own age. She knows more bellboys and chambermaids and waiters than a traveling man. She thinks a dollar bill is something to buy candy with, and that when a stocking has a hole in it, you throw it away. She can't do the simplest problem in arithmetic. And yesterday I found her leaning over the second-floor rotunda rail, spitting on the heads of people in the— Did she hit anybody? It isn't funny, Gay. <laughs> it is, too. I've always wanted to do it. Well, so have I, but, but anyway, it won't be funny five years from now. St. Agatha's occupied half of one of Chicago's huge square blocks. Its great flight of front steps was flush with the street, but at the back was a garden discreetly protected by a thick brick wall, fully ten feet high and belligerently spiked. St. Agatha herself, and a whole host of attendant cherubim, looked critically down upon Magnolia and Kim as they ascended the long, broad flight of steps that led to the elaborately and lumpily carved front door. Of the two, Magnolia was the more terrified. The windows glittered so sharply. The stairs were so clean— the bell, as they rang it, seemed to echo so hollowly through endless unseen halls and halls and halls. The hand that opened the door had been preceded by no sound of human footsteps. The door had loomed before them seemingly as immovable as the building itself. There was the effect of black magic in its sudden and noiseless opening. The great entrance hall waited still and dim. The black-robed figure before them was vaguely surmounted by a round white face that had the look of being no face at all, but a flat, circular surface on which features had been clumsily daubed. I came to see about placing my little girl in school. The flat surface broke up surprisingly into a smile. She was no longer a mysterious and somber figure, but a middle-aged person, kindly, not especially bright. This way. This way led to a small and shiny office presided over by another flat circular surface. This, in turn, 
gave way to a large and almost startlingly sunny room, one flight up, where sat at a desk a black-robed figure, different from the rest. A large pink face, penetrating shrewd blue eyes behind gold-rimmed spectacles, a voice that was deep without resonance, a woman with the look of the ruler, Parthy, practically, in the garb of a mother superior. Oh, my goodness, thought Magnolia, in a panic. She held Kim's cool little hand tight in her own agitated fingers. Of the two, she was incalculably the younger. The classrooms, the sewing room, sister this, sister that, the garden, little hard benches, prim gravel paths. Holy figures in stone brooding down upon the well-kept flower beds. Saints and angels and apostles. When all those glittering windows were dark and the black-robed figures within lay in slumber, their hands, surely, crossed on their barren breasts, and the flat circular surfaces reposed exactly in the center of the hard pillows, and the moonlight flooded this cloistered garden spot with the same wanton witchery that enveloped a Sicilian bower, did these pious stone images turn suddenly into fawns and nymphs and dryads, Magnolia wondered, wickedly, aloud, I see, oh, I see, Oh, the refectory. I see. Prayers. Seven o'clock. Dark blue dresses. Every Thursday from two to five. And sewing and music and painting as well. And this was the chapel. Oh, I see. And this was her bedroom, to be shared with another pupil. Oh, but she has always had her own. It is the rule. Oh, I see. I'll let you know. It's Kim. Oh, I know it is, but that's her name. Yes, yes, it does sound... <laughs> no, I don't think she'd like to have you call her anything else. She's she's so used... I'll let you know, may I? I'd like to talk it over with her to see if she thinks she'd be happy. In the garden, in various classrooms, in the corridors, and on the stairs, they had encountered girls from ten to sixteen or even eighteen years of age, and they were all dressed exactly alike, and they had all flashed a quick, prim look at the visitors from beneath demure lids. Magnolia had sensed a curious undercurrent of plot, of mischief. Hidden secret thoughts scurried up the bare, varnished halls, lurked grinning in the stairway niches. They were back in the big, sunny, second-floor room after their tour of inspection. The pink-faced Parthy person was regarding them with level brows. Magnolia was clinging more tightly than ever to Kim's hand. It was as though the child were supporting her, not she the child. "'But I know now whether I like it or not.' Kim had spoken up astonishingly. I like it. Magnolia was horrified to find that she had almost cried. Oh, no, no, Kim, aloud. She said instead, Are you sure, darling? You needn't stay unless you want to. Mother just brought you to see if you might like it. I do, repeated Kim patiently, as one speaks to an irritating child. Magnolia was conscious of a sinking sense of disappointment. 
She had hoped, perversely enough, that Kim would stamp her feet, throw herself screaming on the floor, and demand to be carried out of the bare, clean, orderly place back to the delightful welter of Clark Street. She could not overcome the feeling that in thus bestowing upon Kim a ladylike education and background, she was depriving her of something rich and precious and colorful. She thought of her own childhood. She shut her eyes so as to see more clearly the pictures passing in her mind. Deep rivers, wide rivers, willows by the water's edge trailing gray-green, dogwood in fairy bloom. Plinkety, plunk, plunk, plunk. Plinkety, plunk, plunk, plunk. Cotton bales, sweating bodies. Sue, if he loves you, go with him. Tomorrow night, ladies and gentlemen, that magnificent comedy drama, Honest Hearts and Willing Hands. The band, red-coated, its brass screaming defiance at the noonday sun. The steely blue eyes in the pink face surrounded by the white wimple and the black quaff seemed to be boring into her own eyes. If you yourself would rather not have her here with us, we would prefer not to take her. "'Oh, but I would, I, I do,' Magnolia cried hastily. So it was arranged. Next week, Monday, half a dozen woolen this, half a dozen cotton that. Descending the great broad flight of outside steps, Magnolia said like a child, "'From now until Monday, we'll do things, shall we? Fun. What would you like to do?' "'Oh, a matinee on Saturday.' Began, oh, a matinee on Saturday, began Kim eagerly. Magnolia was enormously relieved. She had been afraid that this brief glimpse into the more spiritual life might already have had a chastening effect upon the cosmopolitan Kim. Thus, the child was removed from the pernicious atmosphere of the Chicago levee, just when the levee itself began to feel the chastening hand of reform. Suddenly, overnight, Chicago went civic. For a quarter of a century, she had been a strident, ample-bosomed, loud-mouthed, Rabelaisian giantess in red satin and diamonds, who kept open house day and night and welcomed all comers. There were food and drink and cheer. Her great muscular arms embraced ranchers from Montana and farmers from Indiana and bankers from New York. At Bathhouse, John's Workingmen's Exchange, you got a tub of beer for a nickel. The stubble-faced bums lined the curb outside his ceaselessly swinging doors on Clark Street. The visiting ranchers and farmers and bankers were told to go over to the Palmer House and see the real silver dollar sunk in the tiled floor of that hostelry's barroom. The garrulous Cochlin, known as the Bath and the silent little hinky-dink Mike Kenna were Chicago's first ward alderman and her favorite naughty sons. The roulette wheels in Gambler's Alley spun merrily by day and by night. The mayor of the city called a genial, Hope you're all winning, boys, as he dropped in for a sociable drink and a look at the play, or even to take a hand. What'll you have? was Chicago's greeting, and don't care if I do her catchphrase. Hetty Chilson was the recognized leader of her sinister world.
and that this world happened to be prefaced by the qualifying word under made little difference in Chicago's eyes. Pawn shops, saloons, dives, and gambling houses lined Clark Street from Twelfth to the river and dotted the nearby streets for blocks around. The wind burned ranchmen in bearskin coats and sombreros at Polk and Clark were as common a sight as the suave, white-fingered gentry in Prince Albert's and diamonds at Clark and Madison. It was all one to Chicago. Game upstairs, gentlemen. Game upstairs. New York, eyeing her western cousin through disapproving lorgnettes, said, What a crude and vulgar person. Me? blustered Chicago, dabbing futilely at the food and wine spots on her broad satin bosom. Me? Ha! I'll learn ya I'm a lady. The names of University of Chicago professors, economics departments, began to appear on the lists of aldermanic candidates. Earnest young men and women with notebooks and fountain pens knocked at barred doors, stated that they were occupied in compiling a survey, and asked intimate questions. Down came whole blocks of rats' nests on Clark and Dearborn, with the rats scuttling frantically to cover. Up went office buildings that actually sneered down upon the Masonic Temple's boasted height. Brisk gentlemen in eyeglasses and sack suits whisked in and out of these chaste edifices. The clicking sound to be heard on Clark Street was no longer that of the roulette wheel, but of the stock market ticker and the Western Union transmitter. It was rumored that they were going to close Jeff Hankins. They were going to close Mike McDonald's. They were going to banish the Washington Park racetrack. They can't do it, declared Gaylord Ravenel. Oh, can't we? <laughs> Sneered the reformers. Snick-snack went the bars on Hankins' doors and on Mike McDonald's. It actually began to be difficult to find an open game. It began to be well-nigh impossible. It came to such a pass that you had to know the signal knock. You had to submit to a silent scrutiny from unseen eyes peering through a slit somewhere behind a bland closed door. The Prince Alberts grew shiny. The fine linen showed frayed edges. The diamonds reposed unredeemed for longer and longer periods at Lipman's or Goldsmith's. The Ravenel ring and the succession of sealskin sacks seemed permanently to have passed out of the Ravenel possession. The Malacca stick, on the other hand, was now a fixture. It had lost its magic. It was no longer a symbol of security. The day was past when its appearance at Lipman's or Goldsmith's meant an I.O.U. for whatever some gay Ravenel's messenger might demand. There actually were mornings when even the cockeyed bakery represented luxury. As for breakfast at Billy Boyle's, <laughs> an event. The Ravenel's past experience in Chicago seemed, in comparison with their present precarious position, a secure and even humdrum existence. Ohio and Ontario streets knew them for longer and longer periods. Now, when Magnolia looked into the motley assemblage of objects in the more obscure pawn-shop windows, she was likely to avert her eyes quickly at recognition of some object not only intimate, 
but familiar. Magnolia thought of Kim, safe, secure, comfortable in the convent at in the convent on Wabash Avenue. I must have felt this thing coming, she said to Ravenel. Felt it in my bones. She's out of all this. Oh, it makes me happy just to think of it, to think of her there. How are you going to keep her there? demanded Ravenel. I'm strapped. You might as well know it, if you don't already. I've had the damnedest run of luck. Magnolia's eyes grew wide with horror. Keep her there, Gay. We've got to. I wouldn't have her knocking around here with us, Gay. Can't you do something? Something real, I mean. Some kind of work like other... I mean, you're so wonderful. Aren't there things, positions, you know, with with banks or, or those offices where they buy stocks and sell them and, and make money and wheat and, and... wheat and things? Lamely, Ravenel kissed her. What a darling you are, Nola, <laughs> a darling simpleton. It was a curious and rather terrible thing, this love bond between them. All that Parthy had grimly predicted had come to pass. Magnolia knew him for what he was. Often she hated him. Often he hated her. Often he hated her because she shamed him with her gaiety, her loyalty, her courage, her tenderness. He was not true to her. She knew this now. He knew she knew this. She was a one-man woman. Frequently they quarreled hideously. Tied to you, tied! God knows I'd be happier without you. You've never brought me anything but misery. Always finding fault. Put on those fine lady airs with me. What did I take you out of? An honest living, anyway. Look people in the face. Accusations, bitterness, longing, passion. The long periods of living in sordid surroundings made impossible most of the finer reticences. Garments washed out in the basin. Food cooked over the gas jet. One room. One bed. Badly balanced meals. Reproaches, tears, sneers, laughter. Understanding. Reconciliation. They loved each other. Over and above and through and beneath it all, thick and thin, warp and woof, they loved each other. It was when their fortunes were at lowest ebb, when the convent tuition had now been two terms unpaid, when the rent on the Ontario Street lodgings was overdue, when even Ravenel, handsome and morose, was forced to content himself with the coffee and rolls of the bedroom breakfast, when a stroll up Clark Street meant meeting a dozen McLean suits as shabby as his own, it was at this unpropitious time that Parthenia Anne Hawkes was seized with the idea of visiting her daughter, her son-in-law, and her grandchild in Chicago. Her letters always came to the Sherman House, had been called for there through these years, though the fluctuations of fortune had carried the Ravenals away from the hotel and back again with a tide-like regularity. Twice Magnolia had taken Kim to see her grim grandmama at Thebes when the cotton blossom was in for repairs during the winter season. These visits had always been timed when the Ravenal tide was high. 
Magnolia and Kim had come back to Thebes on the crest of a wave foaming with silks and laces and plumes and furs. The visits could not, however, be said to have been a success. Magnolia always came prepared to be the fond and dutiful daughter. Invariably, she left seething between humorous rage and angry laughter. <laughs> it wasn't anything she actually did, she would explain afterwards ruefully to Ravenel. It's just that she treats me with such disrespect. She pondered this a moment. I honestly think Mama's the vainest woman I have ever met. Strangely enough, Kim and her grandmother did not get on very satisfactorily either. It dawned on Magnolia that the two were much alike. Their methods were different, but the result was the same. Each was possessed of an iron determination, boundless vitality, enormous resistance, canny foresight, definite ambition. Parthy was the blustering sort. Kim the quietly stubborn. When the two met in opposition, they stood braced horn to horn like bulls. On both occasions, these visits had terminated abruptly in less than a week. The bare, windswept little town, winter-locked, had seemed unspeakably dreary to Magnolia. In the chill parlor of the cottage, there was a wooden portrait of her father done in crayon, it was an enlargement which Parthy had had done from a small photograph of Andy in his blue coat and visored cap and baggy wrinkled pants. An atrocious thing, but the artist, clumsy though he was, had somehow happened to catch the alert and fun-loving brightness of the keen brown eyes. The mutton-shop whiskers looked like tufts of dirty cotton. The cheeks were pink as a chorus girl's. But the eyes were Andy's. Magnolia wandered into the parlor to stand before this picture, looking up at it with a smile. She wandered, too, down to the river to gaze at the sluggish yellow flood, thick now with ice, but as enthralling as ever to her. She stood on the riverbank in her rich furs, a lonely, wind-swept figure, gazing down the river, down the river, and her eyes that had grown so weary with looking always at great gray buildings and grim gray streets and swarming gray crowds now lost their look of strain, of unrepose, as they beheld in the far, still distance the lazy southern wharves, the sleepy southern bayous, Cairo, Memphis, Vicksburg, Natchez, New Orleans, Queenie. Joe, Ellie, Schultze, Andy, Julie, Steve. She took Kim eagerly to the water's edge, gave her the river with a sweep of her arm. Kim did not like it. Is that the river? she asked. Why, yes, darling, don't you remember? The river. The river you told me about? Of course. It's all dirty and ugly. You said it was beautiful. Oh, Kim, isn't it? No. She showed her the picture of Captain Andy. Grandpa? Yes. Captain? Oh, yes, dear. He used to laugh so when you called him that when you were a little baby. Oh, look at his eyes, Kim. Aren't they nice? He's laughing. He's funny looking, said Kim. 
Parthy asked blunt questions. Sherman House? What do you go living in a hotel for all these years with the way they charge for food and all? You and that husband of yours must have money to throw away. Why don't you live in a house with your own things, like civilized people? Gay likes hotels. A shiftless way to live. Must cost a mint of money. It does, agreed Magnolia amiably. <laughs> like to know where you get it, that's what. Gay is very successful. A snort as maddening as it was expressive from Parthy. The widow Hawks did not hesitate to catechize the child in the temporary absence of her mother. From these sessions, Parthy must have gained some knowledge of the Ohio and Ontario street interludes, for she emerged from them with a look of grim satisfaction. And now, Parthenia Ann Hawks was coming to Chicago. She had never seen it. The letter announced her arrival as two weeks distant. The showboat season was at an end. She would stay at the Sherman house where they were, if it wasn't too expensive. They were not to pay. She wouldn't be beholden to anyone. She might stay a week. She might stay two weeks or longer, if she liked it. She wanted to see the stockyards, the Grand Opera House, the Masonic Temple, Marshall Fields, Lincoln Park, and the Chicago River. My God, said Gaylord Ravenel almost piously. My God. Stricken, they looked at each other stared. It was a thing beyond laughter. Every inch of space about them spelled failure. Just such failure as had been predicted for them by the woman who was now coming, and whose coming would prove to her the triumph of that prediction. They were living in a huddle of dis they were living in a huddle of discomfort on Ontario Street. Magnolia, on her visits to Kim at the convent, was hard put to it to manage the little surprise gift planned to bring to the girl's face the flashing look of gay expectancy. A Henrici cake elaborately iced to share a Henrici cake elaborately iced to share with her intimates. A book, a pair of matinee tickets as a special treat, flowers for the mother superior, chocolates. Now the Christmas holidays were approaching. Kim would expect to spend them with her parents. But where? They would not bring her to this sordid lodging. And somehow, before the new term began, the unpaid tuition fee must be got together. Still, the Ravenals had faced such problems as these before now. They could have met them, they assured each other, as they always had. Luck always turned when things looked blackest. Life did that to tease you. But this was different. Gaylord Ravenel's world was crumbling. And Parthy, Parthy, here was a situation fraught with what of horror. Here was humiliation. Here was acknowledged defeat. Borrow, suggested Magnolia. On what security? I don't mean that kind of... I don't mean business-like borrowing. I mean borrowing from friends. Friends. Oh, all these men. Men? What men? The men at the, the places. She had always pretended that she did not actually know he came by his livelihood as he did. She never said, Gambler's Alley. She refused to admit that daily he had disappeared within the narrow slit of lane that was really a Clark Street alley. 
that he had spent the hours there watching bits of pasteboard for a living. The men you have known so many years. Grimly. They've all been trying to borrow of me. But Mike MacDonald, Hankins, Varnell. She casts pretense aside now. Thousands. They've had thousands of dollars. All the money we brought with us to Chicago. Won't they give some of it back? This he found engaging rather than irritating, as well he might have. He shouted with laughter, as he always did, at a fresh proof of her almost incredible naivete. At times such as these, he invariably would be impelled to caress her, much as one laughs at a child, and then fondles it delightedly after it has surprised one with an unexpected and charming trick. He would kiss the back of her neck, and then her wide, flexible mouth, and she would push him away, bewildered and annoyed that this should be his reaction to what she had meant so seriously. <laughs> no, La, you're priceless. You're a darling. There's no one like you. He went off again into a shout of laughter. <laughs> Give it back. <laughs> MacDonald. <laughs> There's an idea for you. How can you act like that when you know how serious it is? Serious? <laughs> Why, damn it, it's desperate. I tell you, I'll never have her come here and see us living like this. We'll get out first. Say, Nola, what's to prevent us getting out anyway? Chicago's no good anymore. Why not get out of this? I'm sick of this town. We haven't any money to get out with, for one reason. And Kim's at school, and she's going to stay there. She's going to stay there if I have to... After what? Ask Mama for the money. She said this mischievously, troubled though she was. Out he flew into a rage. I'll see her in... I've been in deeper holes than this and managed to crawl out. He sat a moment in silence staring with unseeing eyes at the shabby sticks of furniture that emphasized the room's dreariness. Magnolia, seated as quietly opposite him, sewing on a petticoat for Kim, suddenly let her hands sink in her lap. She realized, with a sort of fright, that he was as completely outside the room as though his body had been wafted magically through the window. And for him, she, too, had vanished. He was deep in thought. The mask was off. She sat, looking at him. She saw, clearly, the man her mother had so bitterly fought her marrying. The face of this man, now in his late thirties, was singularly unlined. Perhaps that was what you missed in it. The skin and hair and eyes, the set of the shoulders, the lead of the hand from the wrist, bespoke a virile man. But vigor? Vigorous? No, he was not that. This was a fencer, not a fighter. But he had fought for her years ago. The shambling preacher in the little river town whose name she had forgotten— that simple, ignorant soul who preached hellfire and thought that play-actors were damned. He had not expected to be knocked down in his own musty little shop. Not much of a victory, that. Gay had opposed that iron woman, her mother. But the soft life since then? Red plush, rich food, Clark Street? Weak? 
What was it? No lines about the mouth. Why was it weak? Why was it weak now if it had not been twelve years ago? A handsome man. Hard. But you couldn't be hard and weak at the same time, could you? What was he thinking of so intently? His face was so exposed, so defenseless, as sometimes when she awoke in the early morning and looked at him asleep. Almost ashamed to look at his face. So naked was it of the customary daytime covering. Now, resolve suddenly tightened it. He stood up. He adjusted the smart and shabby hat at an angle that defied its shabbiness. He reached for the Malacca stick. It was nine o'clock in the evening. They had had a frugal and unappetizing meal at a little nearby lunchroom. Ravenel had eaten nothing. He had, for the most part, stared at the dishes with a detached and slightly amused air, as though they had been served him by mistake and soon would be apologetically reclaimed by the slovenly waitress who had placed them before him. She had never been one to say, "'Where are you going?' Yet now her face was so moving in its appeal that he answered its unspoken question. "'Cheer up, old girl. I know somebody. Who? Who, Gay? Somebody I've done favors for. Hmm. She owes me a good turn.' He was thinking aloud. She? Ah, never mind. She, gay? Did I say... Now, never mind, Nola. I'll do the worrying. He was off. She had become accustomed through these years to taking money without question when there was money, to doing without uncomplainingly when there was none. They had had to scheme before now and scurry this way and that, seeking a way out of a tight corner. They had had to borrow, as they had often lent. It had all been part of the Clark Street life, the gay, wasteful, lax, improvident sporting life of a crude new Midwest city. But that life was vanishing now. That city was vanishing with it. In its place, a newer, harder, more sophisticated metropolis was rearing its ambitious head. Magnolia, inured to money crises, realized that the sensation tonight was different. This was not a crisis. It was an impasse. Let's get out of here, Gay had said. There was no way out. The men from whom he had borrowed in the past were themselves as harried as he. The sources from which he had gained his precarious livelihood were drying up, had almost ceased to exist, except furtively. I know somebody, somebody who would like to do me a favor, somebody who would like... A horrid suspicion darted through her mind, released from the subconscious. Appalled at its ugliness, she tried to send it back to its hiding place. But it would not go. It stayed there before her mind's eye, grinning, evil, unspeakably repulsive. She took up her sewing again. She endeavored to fix her mind on Kim, Kim, asleep in the cold, calm quiet of the great walled convent on South Wabash, 
French in embroidery and deportment and china painting, and wimples and black wings and long, dark, shining halls and round white faces and slim white tapers and statues of the saints that turned into fawns. And why was that not surprising? A clatter. One of the saints had dropped her rosary on the bare, shining floor. It wasn't a rosary. It was an anchor ringing against the metal stanchion of the cotton blossom. Magnolia awoke. Her sewing scissors had fallen from her lap. Her face felt stiff and drawn. She hugged herself a little and shivered and looked about her. Her little gold watch on the dresser. No, no, of course not. That was gone. She folded her sewing. It was late, she knew. She was accustomed to being up until twelve, one, two. But this was later. Something told her that this was later. The black hush of the city outside. The feel of the room in which she sat. The sinister quiet of the very walls about her. The cheap clock on the shelf had stopped. The hand said twenty minutes after two. Twenty-one minutes after, she told herself, in a foolish triumph of precision. She took down her fine, long black hair, brushed it, plaited it. One of the lacy nightgowns so absurd in the sordid shabbiness of the rooming-house bedroom, so alien to the coarse gray sheets, she had no other kind. She went to bed. She fell asleep. It was just before dawn when he returned. The black of the window panes showed the promise of grey. His step had an unaccustomed sound. He fumbled for the gas jet. His very presence was strange in the dark. The light flared blue, but she knew. She knew, even before it illumined his face, that bore queer slack lines she had never before seen there. For the first time in their life together, Gaylord Ravenel was drunk. She sat up, reached for her wrapper at the foot of the bed, and bunched it about her shivering shoulders. He was immensely serious and dignified. He swayed a little, the slack look on his face. That was all. I'll do the worrying, he said as though continuing the conversation that had held them at nine o'clock. He placed the malacca stick carefully in its corner. He removed his coat, keeping his hat on. The effect was startlingly rowdy, perhaps because he had always so meticulously observed the niceties. Standing thus, weaving back and forth ever so slightly, he pulled from his left vest pocket, where it fitted much too snugly, a plump bill folder. Custom probably cautioned him to retain this, merely widening its open side to reveal the sheaf of notes within. But his condition, and all that had gone to bring it about, caused him to forego his cunning. With a vague but successful gesture, and a little lurch as he stood, he tossed the leather folder to the counterpane. Calm it! he commanded, very distinctly. Ten one hundred dollar bills, and ten one hundred dollar bills makes twenty one hundred dollar bills, and anybody says it doesn't is a liar. <laughs>
$2,000. Would you kindly count him, Mrs. Ravenel, I believe? With business-like dignity, I believe you'll find that correct. Magnolia Ravenel, in her nightgown, with her wrapper hunched about her shoulders, sat staring at the little leather booklet on the bed. Its gaping mouth mocked her. She did not touch it. Two thousand dollars, she said. I believe you'll find that's correct. He seemed to be growing less distinct. Where did you get this, Gay? Oh, never mind. I'll do the worrying. <laughs> he unbuttoned his vest with some difficulty, yawned prodigiously like one who has earned his rest after a good day's work. She looked at him. She was like a drawing in French ink, her face so white, her eyes so enormous, her hair so black. You got this from Hetty Chilson. His collar came off with a crack snap. He held it in the hand that pointed toward the money. He seemed offended at something, not angry, but hurt. How can you say that, Manola? I got one thousand from good old Hat and not a cent more. What do I do then? March up to Sheedy's and win a thousand more at roulette? <laughs> That's a great joke on Sheedy because, <coughs> look, roulette isn't my game. Never has been. Farrell's my game. That's a gentleman's game, Farrell. One thousand heady and marsh right up, let win another thousand. He lurched to the bed. He was asleep at once, heavily, deeply beside her on the bed, his fine long head lolling off the pillow. She knelt in her place and tried to lift the inert figure to a more comfortable position, succeeded, finally, after some tugging. She drew the lumpy coverlet over him. Then she sat as before, hunched in her nightgown and the wrapper, staring at the open wallet with its many leaves. It was dawn now. The room was grey with it. She ought to turn out the gas. She arose. She picked up the wallet. Before extinguishing the light, she counted out ten one-hundred-dollar bills from the sheath within the wallet. One thousand dollars. Her fingers touched the bills gingerly, fastidiously, and a little wrinkle of disgust curled her lip. She placed the bills on the dresser. She folded the leather holder and tucked it with its remaining contents under his pillow. He did not waken. She turned out the light then, and coming back to the bedside, drew on the slippers that lay on the floor. She got her shirtwaist, a fresh white one with a Gibson tuck, from the drawer, and her skirt and jacket from the hooks covered over with a protecting length of calico against the wall. She heated a little water and washed, combed and dressed her hair, put on her clothes, laid her hat on the dresser. Then she sat in the one comfortable chair that the room afforded, a crazy and decayed armchair done in dingy red plush, relic of some past grandeur, and waited. 
She even slept a little there in the sagging old chair, with the morning light glaring pitilessly in upon her face. When she awoke, it must have been nearly noon. A door day. But she had grown accustomed to the half-lights of the Chicago fogs. She glanced sharply at him. He had not moved. He had not stirred. He looked somehow young, helpless, innocent, pathetic. She busied herself in making a cup of coffee as quietly as might be. This might rouse him, but it would make little difference. She knew what she had to do. She drank the hot, revivifying liquid in great gulps. Then she put on her jacket, pinned on her hat, took up the bills, and placed them neatly in her handbag. She glanced at herself in the mirror. My, you're plain, she thought meaninglessly. She went down the dim stairway. The fusty landlady was flapping a grey rag in the outer doorway as her contribution to the grime of the street. What's taking you out so bright and early, Miss Ravenall? Business or pleasure? She liked her little joke. Business, said Magnolia. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Showboat. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the eighth book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast series. Other readings include Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.